Welcome. This is going to be the first uh, IFRC PGI podcast, looking at issues of protection, gender and inclusion, and how we can learn from the experience of people who've been out in the field working on issues on that theme, protection, gender and inclusion. And extremely happy to have uh, Mohammed El Madawi with us here uh, for the first edition of this podcast. And uh, Mohammed was the first uh, person with the title IFRC Protection Delegate and deployed to Libya from August 2019 to December 2020, if I'm not wrong, Mohammed. Correct. And you're speaking to us from a, a beautiful location, um, not in Libya anymore. Where are you? <laughs> I'm in Spain at the moment. And whereabouts? Andalusia. Okay. South well, thank Spain. you. Thank you so much for, for joining us from uh, south of Spain. Uh, lovely spring sunshine coming through. And also joined uh, by Lisa Akero, Gender and Diversity Coordinator and also PGI in Emergencies Coordinator, amongst many other things. And Lisa, of course, you uh, supported Mohammed in a lot of his work in Libya. And we'll go through some of the experiences there between the two of you. And uh, my name is Stephen Wainwright. I'm the Social Inclusion and Protection Coordinator. Mohammed, you were responsible for quite a program. As I say, it was quite an innovative uh, program, quite a, a first, really, in terms of a dedicated program on protection issues and gender and inclusion issues in, in a country office. It was called the Community Empowerment Initiative in Libya and a multi-year protection program aimed at limiting the exposure of affected communities in Libya to actual or potential risks that threaten their physical and psychological integrity. Quite an undertaking. And your task was to establish a protection unit to do that work, to create that program in the IFRC country office in Libya, supporting that program. So my first question to you is, uh, did you realize when you took on that position to what extent this was actually, I would say, groundbreaking or certainly um, quite new for the IFRC to have such a focus on, on, a, on a comprehensive and multi-year protection program? Thank you, Stephen. I uh, feel privileged to be talking to you both today. And I would like to start by uh, thanking you personally both for the invaluable support that you have uh, offered to the program. And I would like to start by also dedicating a special thanks to the uh, Swedish Red Cross, uh, because this program was um, in fact born in uh, Maria Tori and uh, the Swedish Red Cross headquarters in Stockholm. Its inception was, um, was there. And uh, the reason why I start by talking about the Swedish Red Cross and its role in the success of that program is because the Swedish Red Cross uh, in March of 2019 decided to dedicate a full-time position to investigating the Libyan context. So I was hired as a full-time Libya desk officer between March and July of 2019 to basically study the Libyan context, study movement cooperation carefully, and study protection within the movement carefully. And the outcome was a program that was at the intersection of all these three dimensions. So we reviewed the ICRC strategy carefully, we reviewed the strategy of the IFRC, 
the strategy of the Swedish Red Cross as well, called the International Direction, and the strategy of the National Society, right? And then we carefully studied the, the, the progress of protection within the movement, where it was and where it was heading, and we were able to kind of create a projection to see where protection will be in the next five years or so. And finally, to have a good understanding of the Libyan context and humanitarian needs. So the program, if it was, um, if it was successful, it is due to that initial groundwork that placed it at the intersection of these uh, three dimensions. So in that sense, yes, the program intended to be quite innovative um, in its uh, conception of um, unified protection, uh, movement protection framework, right? Uh, innovative in it, some of its uh, tools and, and instruments and activities that relate to new uh, understanding of protection in uh, urban settings and, and, um, and conflicts such as community-based protection, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, it was, it was to some extent innovative, yes. Indeed, thanks uh, for highlighting that innovation that, that happened and I think it was um, being created at a time where indeed the protection in the movement project was just, it had started but it was still quite in formation, it's still developing uh, I would say and that protection in the movement process has really been trying to bring together the complementarity of different partners and uh, this project was really in the middle of that developing complementarity. Uh, I mean, you were seconded, as we said, by Swedish Red Cross, you're then to IFRC, you're supporting, of course, Libyan Red Crescent. There's a number of partner national societies also working internationally uh, on similar themes and on related themes in the country. You touched on it a bit, but can you say a bit more about just the complexity of establishing some common understanding and a direction for something as already complex as a, as a protection program and then establishing that within with those different partners if you allow me i i believe also that um this goes back to um an axiological framework that was actually established at the beginning of the program so um initially um there were two main approaches, let's say. Uh, the first approach, um, perhaps this could be seen as uh, somewhat of a mystical dimension, but in fact, it is quite practical. So at the beginning of, of the program, we had to uh, rectify our intentions, uh, basically, to set our intentions. Uh, why do we want to do this program, right? And rectifying intentions, actually allow you to have a set purpose. And a set purpose allow you to have a clear vision. And that allows you to have three essential things. One is being, being able to arrange your priorities. Mm -hmm. Two, to be able to select the right choices and make the right decisions. Why? This is important because when you start the mission, you are going to be met with incredible challenges, competing interests uh, from stakeholders, from partners, um, 
overwhelming uh, humanitarian needs, uh, demands from the national society, demands from the uh, management at the country office. And within the midst of, of this um, um, challenge, let's uh, put it mildly, uh, having a clear vision and being able to have these three instruments is absolutely crucial in the success of your initiative. So as humanitarians, uh, we ask ourselves, why are we doing what we are doing? And in the beginning of this program, I asked myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? And the answer was to ultimately alleviate suffering. And that purpose and that vision allow me to really overcome a lot of hurdles and a lot of challenges and maintain a clear view on the objective of the program. Uh, the second um, the second dimension uh, or the second uh, approach uh, to the program uh, which directly answers your question on uh, how movement cooperation was uh, was arranged and how the challenges were met is basically to approach um, cooperation with uh, an a perspective of servitude, if I may put it. Mm -hmm. So basically, instead of uh, coming to partners and thinking, how am I going to get things, my things done? You ask yourself how you're going to help those partners get their uh, things done in very simple terms. And by allowing all the partners to um, be understood and be listened to, and to have a transparent uh, and open discussion uh, and uh, genuinely and sincerely working on um, uh, offering a space for their success as well within the program, you actually create very strong uh, cooperation and, um, and uh, yeah, movement uh, partnership. So uh, these, I would say that were the two crucial um, crucial uh, approaches mm -hmm. to the success of this component of the program. Having that, that priority, having that clarity at the beginning is of course so important and you had a, beyond just the emphasizing wanting to alleviate suffering, right? Then I think in terms of the modality of the program in the early documentation that you shared, there was this focus on ownership. <laughs> on complementarity, on localization, on tailored uh, intervention. And uh, that seemed to be, from what we've discussed before, quite crucial to the success of that design phase. Can you tell us maybe a bit more about whether those four principles, they continued throughout the design phase and how you were able to make, turn those principles into, into a reality? With uh, sweat and tears, <laughs> as simple as that, really. <clears throat> so, of course, we come into the field as humanitarians and people do not receive us with open arms, right? Uh, some uh, see in us uh, an opportunity of funding. They see a dollar sign uh, written on our forehead. Some, uh, and it's a reality, you know, I mean, we have to, 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 to talk about these things. Uh, some see an opportunity for a visa, you know, to go somewhere to Europe or uh, whatever. Uh, some partners are under a lot of pressure from, you know, the back donors and they just want to get things done, you know, and, um, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, 
there is a lot of competing, uh, you know, competing interests, and and you need to to be able to carefully maneuver uh, between uh, these uh, challenges and be persistent, and also uh, explain things to to everyone. It uh, you would be surprised um, of how much uh, talking to people and explaining things uh, actually works. So um, yeah, being persistent, being transparent and being open and explaining why you want to do something the way you want to do it uh, makes people understand that you are uh, sincere and you're not necessarily just wanting, you know, to get things done your way. And that's about it. It, it is for a purpose and it's for the common good. You know, it's for the success of the program. And was that, so, yeah, part, of, um, was that part of the, the initial basic protection training that you did for the senior management? Because I think we've seen uh, recent, I mean, for many years, but when doing, um, developing the upcoming strategic framework for protection, gender inclusion, that uh, Lisa, of course, you've been very much spearheading. And I think in the lessons learned around that, uh, we've seen that having senior management involvement and understanding uh, is important. Um, Maybe, Lisa, you can just say a, a word or two about that generally, and then let me ask Mohammed about uh, how that worked in, in the Libyan context. Sure. Um, I can maybe frame it around the, the, the process around developing a new strategic framework for PGI. Through that consultation process, we've asked a lot of colleagues, a lot of staff and volunteers in, in national societies and the IFSC, about what are some key elements uh, that uh, we need to have in place to ensure we do better protection, gender and inclusion work. And repeatedly, it's been said that, you know, leadership, both operational leadership, but also strategic and senior leadership within national societies and within the IFRC, um, when they have, when they show an understanding um, of what protection, gender and inclusion is, that's when you can really you can really move the agenda and, and see the the impacts on the ground really from the national society, and it's more at a at an overall level to, to understand the complexities of PGI work, how many how many elements and how many you know layers there is to that work, um, but also having some specified knowledge as to those different themes that we prioritize, such as sexual and gender based violence or child protection. Or, trafficking in persons, to be aware and to understand what it means for an organization to work on those topics is really crucial, we find. And then in the in the Libyan uh, experience then, Mohammed, when, when you had those initial briefings, uh, I guess that was part of the reason for having those workshops with the senior management team. How did that go? I mean, was it uh, smooth? Was it a struggle? Absolutely. It was... It was a complete turnaround. Um, um, I remember my first conversation with my counterpart at the National Society. Uh, the first thing he told me, he's like, uh, this, uh, he's a dear, dear colleague. Um, um, he said, listen, uh, brother, uh, you know, this is a conservative Muslim society and uh, this, we don't want any of this gender stuff, you know. So if you want to do work here, you know, just none of this gender stuff is going to happen. I mean, I, I took it politely and I said, of course, I mean, I am Muslim too and I completely understand and um, nothing is going to happen that you don't want it to happen. You know, you need to be certain of that. So after we did the, the first uh, seminar, just by sitting down and explaining things to, you know, to the senior management, it was like, 
what is gender, you know, what is protection, etc., etc. This same person, you know, bangs on the table and he's like, so what is the problem then? What is the fuss all about? That same person. He's like, so what is the fuss all about then about gender? I mean, this is absolutely needed, you know, in the field. And in fact, the program shifted from a focus on community-based protection, right? Which was the initial, I mean, the concept note was just a guiding document, right? We we're not going there to implement the concept note. So the concept note that initially, you know, thought that it would be um, uh, community-based protection, but then the national side actually like, it's like, forget about community-based protection. We want protection, gender, and inclusion. That's, these are the problems that we meet in the field, right? So yeah, so that, that, was, that was instrumental, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was a very, very positive experience, yeah. And, and that was in, the, in that design workshop when, when that, that turnaround happened, when that? No, that was, that was uh, on. four weeks into, yes, four weeks into my mission, it was in, in September. And also to just give you an idea on how this approach worked and other approaches that are actually unfortunately common in the movement does not work. Yeah. After we had that uh, workshop, um, a, a colleague from the Libyan, uh, from the Libyan Crescent pulled me to the side and he's like, you know what? Just a few months ago, we walked out of a meeting with, and he names, you know, major humanitarian organization uh, because of the way they talk to them mm. about gender, you know? Uh, it was just a very uh, condescending and, uh, you know, an, an arrogant way uh, about how they are going to and how they think that this is right and how Libya needs this and that. They walked out <laughs> of the meeting, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so that, that really stresses... Um, the fact that we need to be careful with our approach and and ownership as you mentioned in the beginning needs to be definitely uh, prioritized right i mean i think it's creating that common ground isn't it that common space where we can have a conversation about something that we often use different words to mean the same thing and and don't realize we're actually talking about the same uh, the same issue because we're so sort of Correct. used to a certain way of, of thinking and that's why I mean I, I um, always uh, thought that the the amount of emphasis that you put on the design phase for that reason, right? And we talked I think once about you have this wonderful garden behind you, and anybody who's done mm -hmm. any gardening or any cooking or any decorating, they know that you know eighty percent of the work is the preparation. Actually, you really need to pull out all the weeds and prepare all the ground very uh, extensively before you plant anything. Otherwise, it doesn't grow. And, and I think you, the design phase was a bit like that. You really looked at the core aspects of Libyan Red uh, Crescent relevant to the program. You had assessment on their uh, planning monetary evaluation reporting capacity, their volunteer management and development situation, where they were, what they knew about CEA and PSS. Um, so all of that detailed assessment and analysis, it led up to the program design workshop that you were both uh, present at. Um, how did that go? If you have, you know, recall back to that um, program design workshop, what was the, what was some of the greatest achievement from that workshop? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I mean th these assessment workshops were absolutely crucial, absolutely mm. crucial, especially in the Libyan context, because 
we had so little data, you know, about the, the, the humanitarian situation on the ground and about the Libyan Red Crescent. The Libyan Red Crescent had very, uh, very uh, poor documentation of, of their organizational uh, status. Mm -hmm. uh, they have been under incredible pressure to respond to overwhelming humanitarian needs for 10 years. And they had absolutely no uh, chance to work on organizational development or, assess uh, or assessments. Uh, so we, we didn't know who we were working with or who we were about to work with, you know, and we didn't know what was the humanitarian situation on the ground. So these assessments were absolutely crucial. Otherwise, how are you going to design activities based on not based on what? I mean, what? I mean, you have to have an understanding, right, of of a situation that you base your actions on. So if you don't have that understanding, the actions are going to not serve the purpose, right? Yes. So that was absolutely crucial. Uh, and as you say, um, the, the 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 information we were able, the data we were able to extract from the assessment workshops about the Libyan Red Crescent. And the data we were able to extract from partner organizations um, from the ground about the humanitarian situation was the core element that the discussion um, uh, centered around in the in the design workshop. Um, yeah, so that that was that was crucial. Okay, and Lisa, what's your most uh, sort of striking memory of that workshop? So there were, um, I was lucky enough to, to be able to run uh, two different workshops. And the first one was the assessment that Muhammad just uh, just talked about. So a three-day workshop together jointly with the Libyan Archives and colleagues trying to, to uh, you know, figure out what are their capacities to do this work and, and what would they be um, asking for support to build capacities on. Uh, first and foremost, and then, you know, what next, and then what next. Um, and that assessment workshop was really, um, it was really, I've never been a part of something like that before, to be honest, uh, which is, I mean, I guess it just says a lot about how we haven't been able to, to do something like that before, no? And it was a fantastic process because you really got to you know, I, we had set up an agenda, I prepared some slides to go through different sessions, but then it completely changed after the first uh, hour of the, of the interaction with, with colleagues. Because you have to be dynamic and you have to contextualize and, and you know, adapt as you go. So um, we kept doing that and having to improvise on our feet because, you know, you would, you would in answering one question, you would get lots of new questions and, and then start tackling them and dig a bit deeper. Um, it was it was fantastic to be able to do it that thoroughly and to be able to do it that participatory as well and not just rely on you know formal internationally recognized tools or or approaches but really go into okay where are you starting from and and where do you want to go um, which which led us then to of course the design workshop which was um, very much as Mohammed said based on all of these assessments kind of bringing together these pieces that. That, that are very interlinked and codependent, so to speak. So if you, you know, if you don't have a proper PMR system in place, how are you going to even um, plan any of these activities uh, that you want to do on, on PGI? Um, so it was very comprehensive, very, very demanding. It was a very, you know, 
hard work, um, very, very long days, but absolutely worth it and, and very inspiring. Um, that whole process ended up, I think, with, with good and reasonable priorities, you know, within PGI, that it's, it's the starting point is, okay, how do we ensure safety and dignity and access for all these people in the Libyan communities that the, that the colleagues are, are working with? Um, and then to really, you know, through that process, really come up with key priorities and scoping it down and being and trying as, as good as we could to, to both be ambitious, but at the same time, be have, you know, realistic goals in terms of what steps are necessary to actually get to a place where you can mitigate, prevent uh, and respond appropriately to, uh, to risks of trafficking in persons, for example, which is extremely complex. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, uh, I mean, Lisa reminded me that, that it was six days, huh? Yeah. of uh, nine to nine to six, right? Of uh, the senior management team of the Libyan Earth Crescent, which were uh, a group of uh, six or so colleagues. Um, IFRC represented, the ICRC represented, the Swedish Red Cross, the British Red Cross. Perhaps there was also the German Red Cross and um, Italian Red Cross and Danish on and off. So all of these kind of brains, you know, looking at the material uh, and the data that we collected and basically just going at it, you know, it was just nonstop discussions and, and analysis and opinions. I mean, it, it, I, I, I think Lisa would agree with me. It was what it, it's probably the proudest achievement of, you know, of the mission without a doubt is, is, is incredible. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, having looked at it a little bit from the from back in Geneva and watching it being developed and hearing a little bit daily updates, I think, Elisa, from you when you were there and then the final outcome, I think you're right to be uh, proud of the achievement of what, what came out of that, uh, uh, especially with so many um, different partners involved and, and even just having that commitment, I think, of senior leadership to be present for that long is it, quite an achievement already and, and yeah. bore some fruits from that. Then, I mean, the, uh, we had a lot of energy, right? A lot of uh, a sense of ownership, I think, indeed, built from that workshop. That was great. And uh, and then also the project proposal itself uh, that's aiming to reduce protection risks in Libya. And it had, uh, and still has, three main outcomes, three components that were really focusing on protection mainstreaming as a, as a basis, some specialized protection gender and inclusion services and also working with and, and working with the national society on their operational and technical capacity of course linked to all that assessment work so it was interesting actually coming back and looking at that a year later that these are three of the four components that we've really highlighted in the um, protection gender and inclusion draft strategic framework. So there's a real uh, sense of continuity there and I think also contributed to the development of that framework. Um, so uh, a question to, to both of you, but I'll start with you, Mohammed. Um, you touched on it a bit, but why those three intersecting elements? Why do we need all, all three of them there uh, and how do they support each other? So from the protection mainstreaming and then the more specialized work and then the institutional uh, capacity building or, or the, the institutional development work? 
Well, to be honest, I, that, that came out of our discussions with the Libyan Earth Crescent. I mean, these were the, the demands of, of the field. Uh, one, the Libyan Earth Crescent had um, um, quite a number of operations, you know, going on on the ground. And they clearly expressed to us that that these operations are happening without any um, backdrop of any standards uh, or uh, yeah standards of, of, of protection uh, or or any gender perspectives. So they really called for that, uh, you know, to to be to be mainstreamed through all of their operations. That was one of their first uh, demands and priorities. Um, uh, plus, uh, when we had during the the design workshop, when we were working in these uh, small, uh, you know, working groups, trying to we divided Libya into into the you know the different um, uh, different um, districts, and each group had was working on a number of districts, trying to identify what are the main risks and uh, protection risks in in those districts. And we came up with uh, a number of uh, risks that the, the senior management team agreed that they were, uh, you know, the priority risks, which required an intervention that focusing on uh, specialized protection services in, you know, um, anti-trafficking that, I mean, to our surprise, this was the biggest protection risk in Libya. You know, we, I wasn't aware of that, even though I worked on that country for many months. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so so that that really came out of the discussions uh, with uh, with the Libyan Crescent, and uh, and I guess the the third element is uh, more of a of a, um, like a, lo a logical progression. You know, if you want to establish these two uh, these two elements, you need to have uh, capacity that would be able to to you know understand and and uh, and uh, implement uh, the activities. So yeah. Okay. So Lisa, I mean, uh, from your also memory of how those three, you know, essential pieces got put together, but maybe also reflecting on, I mean, your other experiences in other national society contexts and, and then this recent um, exercise on building the strategic framework, something that you might want to add on why those three components are always so necessary, actually. Yeah, well, it, it is because they're very much linked, no? And I th I'd say, you know, this is if when you're able to go through a process like like um, we were we were lucky to to be a part of with Olivia Crescent, you start with the risks. Obviously, as Mohammed was was saying, that you you try to really get colleagues, you know, they are out there every day. They're staff and volunteers, you know, they're working with these communities. And they know what's going on, obviously. They're, they're, the, they're the first ones to know. Um, so then once you kind of try and decipher that or elaborate a bit on that, what does that mean? Who, who is, you know, unsafe in the community? And then just accompanying colleagues and asking the right questions around why. Why are women less safe than men, for example, in a given community? And, and how does this affect their lives? You know, it's the same type of question we would then ask to the national society or to colleagues as to you know um how who and when and where would you be able to address this and really through that process they 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 identify of course well 
we would we would start uh, an awareness raising campaign in the community, for example. They will come up with suggested activities, but then, okay, what do you need to do that? First, you need the information that you want to share, right? You need to, to know what you want to say. Yes, and do you know what you want to say? Nah, maybe we need a training. Yes, okay. So we start with, you know, and then you start building up that, that, um, that, step-by-step kind of road to to the end point being hopefully that there will be an awareness raising campaign in in a given community in Libya around a certain issue and so so you know and that's only for for that type of work but then there is and then what you know if you if you start raising awareness about a problem then you will get questions or or information back based on that no if you start asking community members questions about whether or not they're safe then they might tell you that really they're not. And what do you do to respond to that? What do you set up if a woman tells you she's been she's been violated? Um, then you have to specialize your, your response. No? Um, so then you come into the whole, you know, the, the, the mapping the referral pathways and everything. And to be able to do that appropriately, you need more specialized expertise. So it comes quite naturally just by asking really the right questions at the right timing and, and really kind of tediously asking all the details, like when will you do it? Will you do it or will your colleague do it and, and how? And um... Let me just add, I mean, please. those three elements did exist in the, in the concept note, but mm. it didn't mean anything because it was just theoretical. It only became significant and, re- and a reality when it, it came out of you know, the, the, the national society and out of the reality of the field. Then it was only then was it verified. Before that, it was just theoretical. Then you're all ready to start implementation. You've with the multi-year budget, an activity plan, a log frame, a monitoring and evaluation plan, a risk registry. You've got the buy-in from the leadership, the partners are on board. You've done pretty much thought of everything that you could possibly have thought of to have the ground prepared nicely for planting the seeds of protection, extremely well prepared and weeded. Only one thing that you didn't think of, which was a global pandemic <laughs> arriving on in Libya and the rest of the world, pretty much, if I'm not mistaken, at the point you were ready to start implementation. So like so many uh, people around the world over the past uh, year, you had to radically reassess how were we going to do this now. The, the, the challenge came in one, the shift in funding. So all of a sudden, all the money wanted to go to contingency plans, right? So the, the, the program was not the priority anymore. Uh, and also, uh, then the workload shifted to uh, serving those contingency plans, right? So all the time and the effort uh, was dedicated uh, you know, to contingency plans. So then the program needed to be uh, put on hold a bit. And then, because we thought the pandemic was going to be over in, in two, three months, right? And then when we realized that this is you know, here for some time, then we decided to scale down the program uh, so that uh, it can still be managed alongside uh, COVID-19 specific activities, yeah, and that's what we did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned before that, um, indeed, because of the security concerns in, in, in Libya, in any case, you were never 
able to actually visit the, the, the country, which of course is a, a very un unusual in, in many cases to, to not at all be able to visit the country that you're responsible for implementing the program in. Um, do you think it is actually possible to support a country level program without being able to, to visit? Um, I mean, how did you manage, what kind of creative tools did you use? And would you, would you see it as something feasible or really to be avoided? I think to be avoided, to be honest, because um, I mean, to, especially in such a program where there is a lot of, um, you know, innovative uh, tools and activities, a lot of new concepts and, and a national society that is quite new you know, to, to protection work, you needed to be there, you know, right there and then in the midst of the volunteers and uh, supervising activities. Otherwise, I don't see how you can really achieve the impact that, you, that you're aiming for remotely. It's just, I don't know. I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's, it would be effective to, you know, to, to that sense and, um, it, it should be avoided yeah, at all costs, for sure. Okay. Yeah. If I can really add, I mean, we, we, were, we were together face-to-face -face in, in the same room in this with Libya and our cousin colleagues during the assessment workshop and the design workshop. And, you know, these days we're trying to, to do a lot of uh, things remote, like we're building online remote trainings and I, I just, there's something to say about being able to really have those real conversations and discussions about issues around protection, gender, and inclusion face-to-face, uh, -face, I think, was really, really crucial. And it, we weren't able to go to Libya, but they were able to come to Tunis. And, and I don't think we would have come to the same conclusion or to the same, you know, had those processes been, been done in the same way if we were not in the same room. Yeah. Um, they're so sensitive, these issues, and the way that you need to, like we were talking about earlier, kind of adjust and, and really try to find the best way to discuss it and the best way to talk about it. It's, it's nearly impossible online, I would say. No, being in the same, it's, it's difficult to imagine those discussions, especially when you don't know people or don't know the, the, you know, the, the people or the national society to, to do that, not face-to-face, -face, for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you think, though, Mohammed, uh, the fact of having those conversations, even though they were face-to-face, -face, not in-country, also had uh, some influence on how the discussions went? So the way that we kind of tried to go around this, this challenge is, as Lisa mentioned, that we couldn't visit Libya, but we were able to, to, to bring a lot of the volunteers, the heads of branches, uh, technical uh, uh, managers, and the, and, the and the senior management team to Tunisia several times to have these one-on-one -on -one discussions. And I just want to point out that this was absolutely crucial, uh, especially around um, sensitive uh, issues related to you know, protection, and especially with the Libyan context. I mean, I think we really, we really broke a major barrier in, in, in one of those uh, workshops uh, when we sat down and were one, and I, I'm, 
I have to also point out that Lisa was, you know, was was the lead expert in this workshop, and and truly it was due to her aptitude and humility, and uh, transparency and openness that the Libyan North Crescent accepted uh, these uh, these activities and welcomed it into their communities because we were at that time we were talking to. Uh, eight or so heads of branches from all around Libya. Some were very remote communities, you know, people who are extremely conservative and talking to people in a certain way, including being inclusive, you know, being understanding. Uh, that was really the breakthrough in the program. Um, yes, so having the one-on-one -on -one conversation is that that's, essential you know you have to have that you have to sit down in front of the people and just you know yeah uh, and then the second uh, the second kind of thing we 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 did to kind of go go around this remote challenge is to conduct a lot of trainings so we did online trainings and that's something that you can do online uh, um, i mean it compensates a, a bit uh, but it stops there once you want to implement the activities I, I think that you have to be in the midst of the volunteers and, uh, yeah. You know, repeatedly emphasize the, the importance of, of ownership, right, from, from the beginning and all the way up from the first moment to the, to the last. And um, you've talked quite a bit about how you were cultivating that sense of uh, ownership in, in different ways. Um, but maybe just to put it a little bit in a, in a nutshell, I mean, how, how did that sense of ownership to the extent you were able to create it how did it support the development and implementation when you came to implementation phase how did it support the smooth running of the program well i mean i can point i can point out uh, two uh, two milestone events um the first uh, interaction with the senior management team right in this uh, in september um, when they realize that I'm there to actually support what they want to do, you know, they started to be like, oh, like, because they, they, they were on their, on their guard because they, they, you know, they were, I guess, um, um, uh, um, kind of uh, cautious based on previous experience that, you know, that they need to kind of, you know, push back and need to make sure that, you know, that no one tells them what to do and, and that, uh, but, but when they realize that, okay, I'm here to really see what you want to do, and I'll do my best to support it. So that that was, you know, like really, uh, you know, a, a change of uh, perspective. And and they realized, well, this this is actually our program. You know, like no one is asking us to do anything. That we are going to be asking you, right, to do what we want to do. So that was um, the first uh, step, and that really. Um, made the Libyan Red Crescent absolutely engage. I mean, we were, we wouldn't have been able to, for example, uh, conduct these four assessment workshops in such a short time with such a, a, a large number of participants, right? If, if it wasn't that they believe that this is actually serving their organization, right? And this is working for the interest of their organization. And this will eventually benefit their communities. That was, you know, that was their belief. We weren't offering them any money, by the way, at that time, right? Uh, it was just uh, doing these uh, assessment workshops because perhaps at some point in the future we're going to receive some funding, right? 
so they were engaged even though there wasn't any funding. We were designing a program without any uh, um, confirmed source of funding. Uh, and then the next step is how they were engaged in the, in the uh, program design workshop. Six or seven senior management team colleagues sitting every single day from nine to six, uh, you know, talking their hearts out and squeezing their brains uh, because they knew that they're going to go home with that program as their own. So if there was no sense of ownership, none of this would have happened. As simple as that, you know, as simple as that. It's been really fascinating to kind of look back in time and look back from a different perspective. Uh, now you're a few hundred uh, or maybe thousand miles away in Andalusia, far from Libya. We have that benefit of hindsight, and uh, which can be a wonderful thing. Um, indulging in that for a moment, if you could go back in time and do it all over again, what uh, piece of advice would you give your former self? <laughs> If you could go back and say, okay, Mohammed, these are a couple of things you really need to keep in mind for this, uh, for this project. That's a tough question. <laughs> I mean, one, to be, uh, honestly, to be more strong. <laughs> I, uh, I would have, and um, I would have told myself to be, to be more strong because, um, yeah, because success was just uh, just uh, you know a stone throw away. Um, really, is just uh, persevere, uh, believe in what you're doing, be strong. Looking back now, it would have helped um, to to understand that uh, we are as uh, humanitarians uh, at a, a certain point in time where we are going through an identity crisis where we have uh, kind of uh, transformed from a grassroots movement to sort of an enterprise. And along the way, I believe we have lost a lot of our value system. Um, and that's an honest discussion that we really need to have um, to go back to humanitarian values um, and to carry those values um, in our hearts and have those values reflected in our actions. I think, uh, I think that's a crucial discussion, but maybe for, for another time. You know, in the spirit of learning and, and really having honest discussions about how to get better. Um, we've been talking about the importance of ownership and the institutional capacity of a national society as an organization to be able to work with these issues can you give the IFRC a bit of a uh, thought or, or advice in the same regard in terms of what do you think the IFRC should work to improve in terms of its institutional capacity to do this work? To be honest, I think, uh, I mean, uh, I've had a brief, you know, brief, brief experience with the, with the IFRC and I think it's mainly due to lack of funding so far. Uh, I mean, the, the expertise is there, the willingness is there, the, you know, the, the support and solidarity is there, the spirit is there, but there is no money, you know, as, uh, as far no. as I can see. So, so honestly, there is no advice to give except to maybe national societies that they should give more money, they should fund more uh, crucial, uh, critical positions, you know, around the, the regions. 
uh, yeah, it, it's mainly from what I have seen in my brief experience, it's mainly a problem of funding. Um, otherwise, um, yeah, the most, most of the essential elements of uh, success and support are present, are truly present, yeah. And we, we didn't pay you to say that. So. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no. <laughs> no, this is uh, free of charge. <laughs> no, I'm not getting paid at all. <laughs> Very good. No, no, it was just, it was really a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you guys. And uh, to be honest, since I left, I haven't really had a chance to kind of, you know, look back at what happened. And it, it was a pleasure to go through the... Um, this uh, this initiative with you and uh, yeah look back with an analytical and critical eye it's, it's it was a pleasure thank you thank you for this opportunity well thank you so much for the for the time i mean it's uh, extremely uh, valuable and, and useful i mean they're not uh, it's been fascinating for us I, i'm sure but of course uh, i think that experience because it is so um unique in many senses that that experience in Libya and it's also so sort of contained if you know what I mean you know we had that beginning and, and developed it in that very um, thanks to, to you in this very uh, comprehensive and careful way and then we sort of see the development and see the the outcome and so it, it, it makes it very useful I think for other IFRC staff and other national societies to look at this phased approach and what what needs to happen in each in each phase and uh, really really happy to hear that yeah absolutely yeah no i i think as i say that this gardening metaphor is kind of stuck in my <laughs> head now but without, <laughs> without that kind of preparation nothing will uh nothing will grow or it will grow quickly and then it will die uh, uh soon after that so so to have that preparation can't agree with you more mm. great well thank you for joining us from sunny andalusia <laughs> and uh, with that a we'll, pleasure uh, draw this uh, first PGI podcast to a close. Thanks, Lisa, for being here. Thank you, Mohammed, for being here. And um, looking forward to the next one. <laughs>